Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Reese Crowther, professional punter, entrepreneur, business owner, uh, general all-around extraordinaire. Reese, thanks very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Reese Crowther, professional punter, entrepreneur, business owner, uh, general all-round extraordinaire. Reese, thanks very much for coming on. No problems, Jake. Pleasure to be here. So, Reese, this will probably take seven or eight hours, but for all of the listeners out there, I'll try and sneak it into one hour if we can. Uh, there's a lot to cover off, a lot to talk about. Even just uh, looking over some of the different things you've done in your life is pretty astonishing so far. So. Looking back over the last decade from a betting perspective, what's some of the, the biggest highlights, the low lowlights, some of the memories? Because it would be too difficult to go through every piece in detail. Oh, Jesus Christ. That, yeah, it's, that's a big question, mate. It's, look, betting, betting for me, it, is, it really is my life at this point in time, you know, and it probably always has been a mainstay. Um, you know, I grew up being a competitive footballer, obviously turned that into a career, being a professional. Um, but betting and obviously not betting on, on football, um, obviously that was illegal, but betting on horses and being involved in, in that and, and poker were always a big part of it. And I, I largely think a big part of the betting and the buzz of it was the competitiveness um, to do with it with, you know, obviously being a professional athlete. Um, in terms of the highlights, mate, I, I think it's just the process, isn't it? The people you, you know yourself, you know, the people you meet and, and just, just kind of the places betting takes you if you do it correctly, is, is just amazing. What impact does being a professional goalkeeper have on, on your betting? What, what type of impact does that have generally? Well, you'd like to say risk management, but it's probably being a goalkeeper, you know, you don't have much of risk management. It's notoriously the most stupid position you can play and the most dangerous position you can play um, in football and the most high risk, really, because, you know, there's no foul safe after you. If you mess up, everyone on the field is going to see it. Whereas if you mess up in midfield, you can kind of hide it a little bit. But I, but I think, uh, to be honest with you, mate, I think what football gave me um, with betting, if we're going to boil it down to one factor, I, I would say discipline. Discipline and focus and the ability to, to keep going and and believe it or not, in football, there's there's a lot of variance as well. You know, there's things that happen that are outside of your control um, that, that have got absolutely nothing to do with you or your performance. They've just happened and they're unfortunate, but you've got to keep moving forward. And, and with betting, that's, as you know yourself, Jake, it's, it's very much the same. You know, you can make the correct decision and not get the correct result. Um, and it's a matter of not being disheartened at, at that point. Um, so I'd say if I was going to say that, Whatever footing um, professional being a professional athlete gave me was obviously work ethic, wanting to work hard every day and, and going to work every day even when the results are bad and and the, the discipline, you know, being able to dust yourself down when things aren't going right and, and kind of push through those down periods. Yeah, I've spoken to some 
poker people recently who say similar things with respect to poker, given the extended periods of time of concentration, even though in poker you're kind of on, switched on, fully locked in for, it can be a couple of seconds or minutes when you're active in a hand. It seems similar with a goalkeeper. You're kind of, you've got to be there and present. Sometimes you're more focused and active and other times you can hopefully switch off without being fully switched off. You know, what What a great analogy that is. I've, I've never thought about it like that really because, you know, obviously I've played poker at uh, a very high level, um, some of the biggest games in Sydney. And it's that's that's a fantastic analogy, you know, because in goalkeeping, goalkeeping, you know, there's a long periods of time in that game where you're literally not doing anything. But that split second when the action comes to you, you have to be ready and primed and understand the flow of the game. And I, I suppose when you're playing poker at a high level, you know, you're probably not going to be involved in every hand. So sometimes there are long periods where you're not involved, but you still need to understand the table dynamics, um, you know, who's who's on tilt, who's playing well, who you want to avoid. Um, and also picking your spots in terms of where you're positioning uh, in the hand um, and all the rest of it. That's a a really nice way of thinking about it, really. So what role does poker play in your life now? Is that part of the professional punter part of things, or is it something that's sort of drifted and faded a little bit as the industry seems to, uh, I guess, contract, and then some of the edges that were around back in the boom don't seem to be as as present these days? uh, Yeah, spot on. You know, I think probably two years ago was at the height of my poker playing. Um, I was playing, you know, the biggest game in Sydney, which was uh, centered around a guy called Uncle, uh, a Chinese fella. And, um, you know, he's a big action player. And obviously he attracts, you know, when you've got that one big action player, he attracts the rest of the big action players there because I feel like, you know, they, no big action player wants to sit at a table with a bunch of pros who are just trying to pick him off, you know. So that game was, was enormous, a big pot limit Omaha game. And that was really – that game uh, knocked me for six. Um, you know, variance caught up. We were playing huge stakes. And since then, mate, I've, I haven't really been involved in poker at all because I was kind of playing there. And then I'd go back and play the 5-10 game. So we were playing – 200, 400 with an 800 straddle PLO. And as you know, that that game can get enormous, um, especially when you've got people who are just literally sticking it in. And then you'd go back down and you'd play the 5-10 game. And I, I was struggling to beat the 5-10 game because the players were so good. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I, the edge is really going here. You know, there's so much education content out there now. You know, I think my edge is disappearing in this game because I wasn't investing, you know, the four or five hours a day in study and I wasn't putting in the hours. I was just literally turning up to play the big game. So I was astute enough to to get out of that game and move away from it. But, but you're absolutely right. I just think, you know, with with obviously Black Friday was was horrific for the industry, which meant that the recreational money uh, largely left and you had a bunch of pros battling it out. And obviously it's Darwinian, isn't it? You know, the best pros, people are going to get better. Um, and it just the the skill set now just to earn you know even fifty grand out of the game a year you know if you look at if you took that skill set back to two thousand and five you'd be earning five million a year so yeah poker mate has kind of fallen by the wayside but I will say that that poker's literally giving me my start in professional sports betting and being a professional gambler understanding equities probabilities um, and and the nature of of how to manage risk um, and make good decisions. A lot of the time, you know, good decisions many, many, many times a day, you know, there's no chance I'd be where I am right now. So I owe a lot to poker, but in terms of the future of, of where I want to be, poker's not really there. How did you find the shifting from the closed system of poker where there's 52 cards available, you can calculate things to a percentage, you know, with some certainty depending on 
whether you're looking backwards and you you know after the hand or at the time you're making best guesses as to what you think people have. But going from that to something like sports betting or horse racing where we're talking about infinite variables, infinite factors, and there's so many different angles and a myriad of ways of looking at it. Totally. I mean, and, and that's why I think, you know, we discussed it previously. I, I, I think that's why you really need to carve out a niche for yourself and don't try and do everything. You know, I, I'm notoriously... I'm a sprint race guy in, in horse racing. A lot of my subscribers know anything above 1,200 metres. Um, we've obviously got a JV with a big syndicate. They look after everything. For me, I stick to 1,200 metres, 900 metres to 1,200 metres. Um, and, and that's my thing. You know, you need, you need to really focus and hyper-focus on one aspect of the game and become invincible at it because, as, as you said, the variables are infinite. If you're trying to do every race on the card, you, you've just got no hope. You just can't win especially with the, the increase in percentages and point of consumption. You know, you don't want to be sticking your money in um, race to race because that, that 18 to 20% will just eat you up over time, you know, and you just basically give your edge back. Um, so the transition really, mate, was was just trying to – a bit, bit like you do with poker, trying to put your opponent on a range of hands and then kind of weigh up your equity against, against you know, with your holding against his, you know, with – you determine range. It's what you do with horse racing, isn't it? You know, and and sports. You try and understand what a true probability is, or a range of true probability, um, and then you try and maximise that against the market inefficiency uh, with correct staking. And then the discipline factor comes into it from there. So obviously, you know, that's a really easy way of boiling it down. But you know, to generate that true probability is is probably the hardest aspect of it. Um, and as you said, when you've got infinite. Um, you know, probabilities and possibilities, it's, um, it becomes difficult. I think the, the, the best thing, because prior to horse racing, obviously we did sports betting and I ran a sports betting fund and, and that, was, that was fantastic because we really relied on market-driven signals. So that really allowed us to understand our true expected value line, um, whereas in horse racing that really doesn't exist. So it's more statistical modeling and and you know mapping technologies and speed matrices and understanding tempos. Whereas in horse, whereas in uh, sports betting, there's a very very firm expected value line. You know, if you're beating the closing pinnacle line consistently, you're going to make money. So I'm I'm curious if you've thought about what period of your life so far you had the most accelerated learning in this space. To be a professional punter, you've obviously got to have pretty serious acumen in in many areas, not just analysis, not just betting strategy but execution and other things was there a time yeah. where you went from a decent level to a very high level was it when you were playing a lot of hands of poker was it when you were doing a lot of evaluation outside of the poker rooms was it during sports betting horse racing analysis is there a period where you picked up the most do you think great question yeah so basically i'd moved to london um to get involved with a technology company so i had a little uh, kind of a little bit of savings and i was looking to invest and, and get involved in startups so i moved to the uk and i got involved in a few technology things and um they went well for a minute and uh and then they went bust so basically what i was doing i was just playing card games around london just to make ends meet really because i'd lost all my money in this investment and i had a small bankroll and i was i was just trying to chip away pay the rent and keep the lights on type thing and you know obviously doing it well you can pick your spots in london and while i was in london i met up with a lot of uh scandinavian guys so norwegians and, and swedish guys who are very successful poker players and they were telling me about sports betting and how they were taking advantage of the soft books effectively which are the corporates in in uh in the uk so effectively all they do is they had a 
they'd basically monitor Pinnacle, which is obviously for everyone who listens to this with no Pinnacle, they're the sharpest book around. And all you do is monitor the Novig Pinnacle line. And anytime there was a deviation with a soft book from that, you just buy that price. So with Europe, you know European football, NFL, uh, NBA. So, but obviously the inherent risk is that is is that the soft book doesn't want to take your bet if you're constantly beating the Novig Pinnacle line. Um, so we were just literally hammering away at this, and it was just brilliant like the most the best license to print money ever and then you were just understanding okay well these true probabilities or these you know your expected value you can realize this in sports betting as well as well as poker so then i started shifting my focus more and more to sports betting because i thought well i don't have to spend eight hours at a poker table every day we can start creating this and being more efficient and this probably scales a little bit more because you know the more people we have betting for us um, and taking advantage of these books we can actually increase um, our income as opposed to me just swapping my time for money at the poker table. So what did we do? So we started, so we built a little engine um, with TX odds, with a TX odds feed. Uh, shout out to Einar, the CEO of, of, uh, of TX odds, a great guy. Um, and we basically set up an alert system where we had odds feeds from all the corporate books in the UK um, and Norway. Um, and we we basically ran that against the Novig Pinnacle line. So we just had this little server humming, and it would just ping us notifications anytime um, that any softbook was out of line. So even if we were just at the poker table, we'd just get a message on our phone that said, look, um, Unibet are out of line for this Man United game tonight. Um, this is what the line should be. Unibet are at you know, this price. Um, and then we created a little staking um, engine as well, and we were just spinning up money from there. Um, and we're doing really, really well. So I would say like that's that's when the mindset shift occurred where I was like, holy shit, like there's there's these market-driven signals allow us to take advantage of, of huge organizations and they're not efficient. So that's when kind of you start thinking, well, hang on a sec, what, what other opportunities exist in this space? How deep do you think the markets go in terms of scalability? Obviously, there's a as an upper limit, probably people talk about, you know, investing in stock markets is akin to sports betting. And, yeah. you know, there may be elements that are true, but certainly from a, a upper limit perspective, sports betting does have a ceiling. Did you find that those limits were easy to hit or did you think that there was far more availabilities than people might think? Oh, with, with the corporate books, I mean, there's, you, you limit it almost immediately, you know, and that, that was the biggest problem for us is that, you know, you've got friends' accounts and obviously I'm, I hope I don't implicate myself here, but you'd be betting on friends' accounts, girlfriends' accounts and all the rest because as soon as they found out you are beating a no big penny line over a sample size of five bets normally, uh, you were gone. Some books would, were, weren't quick enough to wisen up to it, but, you know, in the UK you had so many books just built on the open bet skin that, you could literally spin up a different book and there's probably 20 or 30 you could hit before they barge you completely and then you've got friends who have 20 or 30. And so it was a process of probably, you know, 12 months, 18 months before you're like, okay, this is done now. And the bets they let you on for, mate, were never more than 150, 200 pound over there. And that was, that was if you were very lucky. So what did we do from there? It's, it's a great leading question. We started looking at the Asian sharp markets where the liquidity is, is far greater and they actually want winning players because they just want the turnover. So bookmakers like SBO, IBC, ISN, even Betfair Matchbook, think guys like that, they just want turnover. You know, so corporate bookmaker, he wants you to lose. But uh, but these these bigger books in Asia, they just want the turnover. So we started investigating them and and thinking, okay, well if we are taking sharp signals and capitalizing on the soft books, that model isn't going to scale into, into the sharp markets. 
uh, one one would believe that was you know that was obviously our hypothesis so what we did was we approached a company called gambit research um and they've got a product called mollybet uh now mollybet's got an api that basically plugs all those big asian sharp books into the one uh brokering tool so you can get a feed from all those prices in real time now if you utilize that api correctly um and the infrastructure is set up in a way that it's it's highly efficient and there's no latency you actually can take advantage of, of various books. You know, if you believe that Betfair sharpest at any point in time, well, you can take advantage of Pinnacle. If you believe that Matchbook, you know, lays coming in a, a sharp, you can then take advantage of SBO and and you almost create a high frequency trading type algorithm. Now, that's easy for me to say here in 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 theory. In practice, it's a it's a really difficult thing to do to have a robust engine that doesn't break down, that runs 24 hours a day. Um, you need to be monitoring at all time that is is efficient so so that's what we went ahead and did we we basically built this infrastructure built on molly bets api to basically use signals to to move into the asian sharp markets where we were going to be able to get more action down and get action down without ever the risk of being limited so the idea was if we have got an edge um let's hammer away at it and we obviously ran um studies for about 12 months to understand if we did have an edge it turns out we we absolutely did in the Asian sharp market. So at the start of the 2017 season or maybe the 2016 season, yeah, 16, 17, we, we launched a, a fund. So we raised a million dollars and we launched a, a sports trading fund. So I was going to ask you about the fund industry generally first before we get into that. But I'm just curious, the word hedge fund, for example, how it was traditionally created was probably to just do exactly that hedge positions and try and take very low risk scenarios and and have a fund yep. set up in that vein. But it sounds like the way 2019 works, a lot of hedge funds don't implement that type of yes. risk management approach or that strategy. Tell us about the sports space generally before you get into exactly what you were doing and some of your, I guess, general thoughts on, on how it's set up. It's it's kind of a mysterious industry generally. Yeah, I, I think it is. And look, I think there's only probably, look, it's it's like this, isn't it? If, if you're very good at it and you've got the bankroll, why the hell would you ever sell action? That's that's all I'd say. You know, you look at Dr. Nick and Jelko and guys like that. I mean, Jelko famously has the bankroll and those people are making money off it in a legacy aspect. But when he started, he was potless. And and what I will say, when when I started um, and Marty and I started this fund, we were both potless. You know, we'd, we'd literally invested everything we had into building this technology. Um, so the reason it was a necessity for us to be able to trade at the highest level, look, we could have scraped together twenty, thirty thousand dollars, but you're never going to realise your expected value. You know, you, I, I think the million dollar mark for us was was perfect because we're going to raise our expected value, and there's not the diminishing returns with a lack of ability to turn over that money due to liquidity issues. So the space in general, I think, I think it can exist, and I, I do think some sort of hedge fund, especially with the USA opening up, there's opportunities. I, I think horse racing is is rife. There's there's some great opportunities there, but again, it's it's like what you say. You're never going to have a huge hedge fund like you do in in the stock market because it's simple facts that the liquidity is just not there, so you can't turn over the money. You know, you never really want to be raising probably any more than ten to twenty million dollars to even bet with because it's just impossible to turn over the money. Yeah, it seems like a tricky uh, situation when you do get to a successful point and people want to put money in. The downside, obviously, is a lot of the time that money will just be sitting in your bank account, not even in play. Therefore, 
not being able to get the returns for those that are interested in investing in the first place. Totally. And look, I, I think with with horse racing and, and the USA is just going to be massive, Jake. You know, if, if we can if we can open up and get shared liquidity, you know, obviously this is a journey. But across the USA, then I definitely think having a fund is certainly far more viable there. You know, but the other big issue, obviously, is is the state by state taxes and, and things like this. And that's probably something we can get into later. But yeah, the, the, the funds and, and things of that nature for us were really, it was more just our friends. You know, we say that we, we, we had six investors and they're all poker players or involved in the industry. Like Einar from TX Odds, for example, was, was one of our investors. And, you know, we were using his feeds. So he was like, oh, well, I'll chuck in some money because you guys, you know, have been doing this for two years and we, I trust you and I can see that you're using the data correctly and everything adds up. So he chucked in some money. So it wasn't like we were going to the – outside of our closed circle. So we said it was a fund. It was more just a little syndicate of, of our friends in a more official capacity. It sounds like outside of the betting itself, there are swings and roundabouts when it comes to being a professional punter, going through the different iterations of, of what your edge is, whether it's in the UK, whether it's putting together a syndicate of friends, whether it's building the tech. There are a lot of things that are outside, just plain variance and luck of betting generally. A hundred percent. And I think... The biggest thing that I find with a lot of professional gamblers is they get too bogged down in their, their own mindset and, and you know, what, what worked for them yesterday, they want it to work tomorrow. And, you know, sometimes it takes them a year to understand that that edge has disappeared. And I think being able to adapt quickly and move and, and hit other markets and, and you still got to take those sound fundamental principles that, that you have of, of always getting the value in whatever whatever type of wagering you're taking on you've always got to get the value you've always got to understand a true probability and get the value but getting fixed and bogged down in in that one thing that worked yesterday might not work for you tomorrow so i think you know and also having a, a great network of friends and people and industry people around you who have been there and done it was probably my biggest thing you know i've, I've always been uh, probably probably ego in the right way and confidence but Ask anyone, you know, I'm, I'm the most humble guy and I'll always, always ask questions and, and kind of be, and the work ethic gets me through, you know, ask questions, work hard um, and chip away at your edge in life, just like you do in anything else. Tell me about the process component. You've talked about UK soft books. You've talked about Asia, obviously Australia. We're talking sports, horse racing. We've got funds and syndicates. Does the process stay similar throughout all of those different variations of life and of betting or is there things you can tweak and change that work in different circumstances that might not work in others, for example? Is there anything that jumps out that's maybe really consistent or something that's more malleable? I'd say discipline and work ethic are the consistencies, but obviously you've got to have a fundamental tolerance to managing risk. Um, that I would say like that, you know, if people are going, how do you, how do you do it? It's like you've just got to know how to manage risk, but you've also got to work bloody hard and you've got to be, be very disciplined. But what I, I would say is, stop focusing on hit rates, you know, and, and things like that. You know, I haven't had a winner this week and it's, it's a matter of understanding true probability and capturing the value at, at all times. And, and that, that exists across every single form of punting I've ever poker to sports betting, to horse racing, have it, have a clear understanding or a belief and a confidence that your assessed price is correct. And, and, you know, don't, don't be arrogant enough to think that that's not going to disappear at some point, but, when you know it's correct, bet with confidence um, and try and you know smash that edge until it doesn't exist anymore. And then have confidence enough in your ability that you're going to be able to find another edge. That's that's what I'd say, Jake. You know, like work ethic, discipline, and and always getting the value. 
uh, and I know they're very broad things and it takes a lot of um, technology and time and experience to understand what is value and what is a true probability. But that, that for me, they're, they're constants across all wagering. Has your risk tolerance changed? So, for example, in your early to mid-20s versus today versus in between, have you been in a mind space where you might be, you know what, I'm 25, poker's going to be around forever, I'm going to go foot to the floor on this edge for this season, this 12 months? Have you been in that mind space versus now where you might be like, you know what, I need to make a living for the next 30 years, i got to grind a fair bit more and take less risk? Yeah, mate. Yeah, it's kind of like you must have a fly on my wall. It's it's funny because I was having a conversation with um, the CEO of his new company called Bet Dogs, great great friend of mine, and um, this was on Friday, and he said, you know, how's the betting going? Blah blah blah. You're still firing away, and I said, mate, look, I said I've decreased the bankroll almost by half and and put a little bit away. I said, you know, I've turned. 31, I've got a solid girlfriend and, and things are moving forward. And I know that I can still keep chipping away um, and, and winning. But, you know, having my emotions, um, my only source of income come from betting at 31 is, um, is, is <laughs> it's different than what it was at, at 23 or 24. Um, you know, I think you get more hard and you get more experienced and you probably, you know, those downswings are coming. So you want you don't want those downswings to represent you know fifty percent of your entire net worth anymore because it's just not worth the sleepless nights and and all the rest of it. So yeah, I think I think as as I've got a little bit older and a bit more long in the tooth, and I know that sounds silly as I'm only thirty one, but you know the more experience you have um, in this game, you realise just bankroll management is just absolutely paramount because you can't you know finish up a day's work and and take it out on your missus or not be present or you know your family and because you, you're worried about money you know you've just got to manage that bankroll correctly and and just just be safe in the knowledge that the results will turn and um and and it will come so yeah i would say i've i've definitely become um i suppose more uh disciplined and less less willing to take you know, huge, huge shots. So everything I do now is absolutely in proportion to my bankroll. Whereas at 26, you know, if my bankroll was a hundred thousand and I thought, you know, this nine to one shot in the Turak was a good thing. Well, I'm having 5,000 on, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I just, I just, I just can't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. And I think from certainly my experience talking to a fair few people over the years, it seems like there are there are different ways to attack the markets and one is pretty clear that you build a model, you find an assessed price and you bet into the markets and, and that's it. You're trying to originate, you're trying to do those types of things as opposed to finding other ways and means and angles and, and variations on those to not necessarily trying to beat the pinnacle closing line as your you know substantial way to make a living. Yes, exactly, mate. It's spot on. I should I should just actually touch on and give more clarity because I feel like we've maybe jumped over a few things there. So basically, Marty and I ran ran the sports betting fund for a year, and we turned over almost a hundred million um, in that year off the million dollar bankroll. So we were really high frequency traders. Um, obviously, the season only goes for ten months, so off that one million, um, we were turning over the bankroll, you know, almost ten times a month. And we ended up making, on average, about 0.5% on the turnover, um, which, was, which was fantastic for, for our um, investors, and, and they were all very happy and, and all the rest of it. And effectively, what happened at the end of that season was um, we got approached by uh, Matthew Benham's organization, um, as well as Star Lizard, um, to go and have some chats with them. And I think what they really wanted to do was acquire what we built, but really, they probably just wanted Marty and I to 
take it take in a meeting with them and, and see whether we wanted to come and work for them so we went to london and, and we spent a fair bit of time um there in the summer talking about our plans for the next season and then out of the blue this softbook approached us and said they wanted to buy the fund um and they wanted to buy the technology and they wanted to to you know, run their own fund in parallel with their softbook operations, and perhaps they were using that engine to um, maybe eke a few more percentage points or be a bit more generous with odds. If they knew what the correct probability was at any point in time of, of a European football match, and they might be able to utilise that in um, in a softbook environment to some extent. Marty and I, we looked at that and the money that was on. As I said, you know, we were running the fund, but we were we were potless, mate. You know, we all the money was going back to the investors, and you know, we were drawing a really small wage. And you know, so when this came along to sell that technology, it it was almost like Jesus Christ. You know, this is this is exactly what um, we were looking for. So we ended up selling the fund um, for a couple million uh, to this soft book, and we basically got out of the game right away. They're still running that fund today, by the way. Um, and it's last year it made an awful lot of money for them. So you look back at hindsight and you think, <laughs> oh, shit, what, what could have been? Um, but but it's it's one of those ones, you know, where where we we were literally grinding, and it was you know two and a half three years of literally having no money and and just just you know you're betting hundreds of millions of dollars, but you you literally had nothing yourself because everything was going back into the fund, and you're literally living day to day. And so when the offer came along. Uh, you know, for a 27-year-old to to walk away with a million bucks, it was like, yeah, that's happening now. <laughs> you know, so so I, you know, we signed the deal, and as a part of that deal, um, Martin and I we signed um, a four-year non-compete clause where we couldn't be involved in in any sort of sports wagering. However, that that excluded horse racing. That entire period pre-sale, where you were grinding and you were turning over a fair bit of money, I'm sure it was a, a fascinating time. It was probably a lot of fun if you did have any off time during that period, how valuable was that looking back? It might not have fattened the pockets in terms of a wage or a salary. Um, obviously, the sale helped at the end of that. But throughout that period, was that were those, were those hours, are they starting to pay off now, for example? Is that a time in your life where you might not have had as, as much free time as you wanted or made as much money betting necessarily because it was part of a fund, but it was clearly valuable for what you're able to do now? It was amazing, you know, like you're literally talking 10 months, uh, 16 hours a day, no days off. You know, I, I recall one time we went out, we were living in a place called Trondheim. Actually. We went out to a place called Superhero Burger to get a burger and it was our first time as, as pals because we were living together. The first time as mates, like going, oh, let's go grab a beer and grab a burger. It was the first time we could actually leave the bot. We felt confident <laughs> we could leave the bot, right? And But Marty could, could access the AWS on his phone and he's, he's there and he's like, I kid you not, it's just like the way the universe works. We're having a burger, sat down, have a beer, and the fucking bot crashed and started placing bets on things that we didn't want. It was, it placed a bet on an under 21s game in Italy. Um, and we were just like, holy shit. So we had to run back to the office and switch it off. And you're just like, can't we just have a beer and a burger for Christ's sake? Like it was just that kind of intensity the whole time. So from that point on, we had to do, it was basically Marty and I manning. The bot, so, you know, NBA would obviously start at 3 a.m. So I'd be up at 3 a.m. manning it, making sure that nothing went wrong. So we made sure we got our NBA action on. Then Marty would start the European football shift the next day. And it was just literally day in, day out type stuff. And just watching the markets and, and watching how information, you know, when you'd watch a Twitter feed and you'd see news about a team would come out or whatever, and you'd see how that would directly impact the market, you start to understand you know, 
the the market, you know, it's very obvious, is just the the distillation of the world's information down to a price. Um, and and it's just such a lovely beast when you are involved in it. You're in such a flow state where you're seeing how that information is in, impacting prices and and who's slow to move and and when that big Betfair lay comes into the market, how all the other book bookmakers react to it or may yeah. So I, I would say that that ten month period was that intensity of, of literally sixteen hours a day was just frightening for my ability to understand probabilities very quickly and and how markets move and percentages. Yeah, just almost, almost like that Rain Man bit, you know, where you sat there, the numbers yeah. are whizzing around your head. You almost felt like because Marty and I were in such a flow state together. When you'd actually go to a pub and have a beer with someone, they're like, they're probably looking at you like, Jesus Christ, this guy, he can't even talk, you know, because you're all numbers and you're all, you know, you're just such high level, you know, uptight the whole time, worrying about the next five thousand dollar trade you've had on. So this is a completely probably weird random question. I don't even know if you will understand what I'm talking about, but there was a case in Europe a number of years ago where a bot was betting on Betfair, and I think it was during a horse race, one of the main incidents where the bot went rogue, and basically the horse was about to cross the finish line or might have even just crossed the line and was offering 100 to 1 or some crazy price, and there was enough on the on the back and lay side or whatever to allow some people to make a, a fair bit of money on that because they were obviously watching the race and saw it. And it went through the court system somewhere in Europe. I can't remember exactly. It was a number of years ago. It just it pops into my mind because I'm a bit of a nerd for this stuff. But essentially, the court said that it was not fair for the bot and the owner of the bot to to be forced to accept that bet or you know take that bet on that they tried to put through. And therefore, those people that smartly took the amount that was sitting there on Betfair didn't get paid ultimately. So, as I said, completely random. But in terms of fairness and how the world is trending and how the world works and a lot of people using bots and a lot of gambling happens through software and especially on places like Betfair all around the world on in-play horse racing, for example, or sports and things like that. But as we sit here today with your experience, obviously, in this space, do you think, you know, from a very high-level perspective, those that are running bots should be held fully responsible for rogue bots or, or properly working bots? Look, I'll be very diplomatic here and and I'll say it's heartbreaking, mate. You know, I can I can only liken it to the Ethereum crash, you know, when all those people had those automatic sell um sell tickets when the price would hit a certain amount, when Ethereum crash had that flash crash and all these people sold their Ethereum, we're talking about um, you know, obviously crypto. Um, they woke up penniless the next day and everyone else was, you know, the price bounced back and those people who bought those on the way down. You know what can you do? That that's that that contract is exchanged hands. I think you you absolutely have to be accountable if you're willing to reap the fruits of automation and you can automate correctly. You've also got to you know reap what you sow when when it does go wrong. Because you know I can't walk up to a bookie after I've had a thousand on you know at eighteens and the price goes off fucking sixes and it gets beat by a short half head. You know I, I can't say oh can I. You know, I, you know, it would have been nice if that would have won. Can I back grand back? You know, <laughs> I think, I think you've you've just got to if you're willing to play that game, you're willing to put in the automation. You've got to ensure that your your infrastructure and your architecture is robust, that it doesn't occur. You know, it's it's all well and good saying, oh, the bot went rogue, but ultimately you're the designer of the, of the architecture of, of that bot. Um, so. So you've got to be fully accountable, and I, I don't think it's fair. Whoever was clever enough to look at that and, and grab that price will. You know, more power to them. They were at their desk. They they sat there. They were putting in the hours. You know, they they should absolutely reap the benefit of it. As it goes, that under twenty one match, we got absolutely battered and lost about fifteen thousand. Not that our investors ever knew it. I mean, we told them at the end of the time and said, "Look, this had happened." Blah blah blah. 
and and it's just they understood that it was it was part of of building a product and building that infrastructure because I guarantee the lessons we learned from that, you know, allowed us to probably make an extra hundred thousand. Yeah, that fifteen grand, albeit was probably heartbreaking at the time, was worth it in the longer run. So. One quick general question on the Australian market before we get into to Reese, the business owner and entrepreneur, more so than the professional punter. The point of consumption yeah. tax, the the general hold going up. How has that impacted the industry generally, and what do you think, you know, moving forward or looking forward, the impact's going to be? Uh, I just think it's it's craziness. You know, it really is, and something something. And when the the whole market shrinking and consolidating, obviously with this flutter. Stars Group merger, you're literally going to have GVC, you know, Flutter and Tabcorp, you know, and then a few small operators like Sports Betting and Top Sport battling and doing their best. But, mate, let me tell you, if if you are betting race to race as of January this year, and I was having this conversation with a fella on Friday, he just said to me, he said, are you finding it harder to win? Because he bets race to race. And I said, no, I said, it's it's still fine for me. I said, because I pick my spot. So I'm not experiencing that, that 18, 20% as, as you might have done because he's a race to race guy. He said, he just said to me, he said, I, I can't win. He said, literally, he said, I bet race to race. And I said, well, you're probably not going to be winning anyway if you bet race to race. But, mate, yeah, it's, it's going to be harder to win. And, and I suppose, you know, it's um, it, it's one of those things whereby – if you don't have good analysis and you, you don't have discipline, you're going to get your shirt, you know, you're going to lose your shirt a lot quicker. And it does impact the recreational punter. It really does. You know, it's like on Saturday, you know, the feature events don't start till race five. They've probably already done their ass by race five. Yeah, well, they've certainly proportionally lost a lot more than we would like them to. You know, the, the churn rate's obviously far quicker, those higher percentages, which is a shame. One more random question, the tote, betting on the tote. Anyone you know outside of the obvious can make money betting only tote or betting a portion of their bankroll through the tote or is it a complete no-go zone these days? Well, all, all you have to do is look at the exotics. The exotic pools are just a disgrace, you know, and, and the recreational money is starting to feel it. You know, I had um, my one of my best friends, his wife, she she bets nothing but exotics, you know, and she's going like she binked in a, a really lovely first four the other day, and she goes, oh, "It's only paid three hundred and fifty dollars," and I said, "Yeah, that's because you got someone taking every combination, <laughs> you right. know." And and it's it's a it's a big issue, and and I think it is impacting the recreational money. Look, I think I think you need to be proficient in in both. I think there's there's certainly you need to use signals to understand when something will look. I'm I'm in a fortunate position that I I know you know, to a very high degree what the big syndicates are going to be betting. So I, I know when to pick my spots with the tote um, and when to when to take the fixed odds in the morning, you know, to a, to a very high degree um, of certainty, not certainty, but a high probability that I'm correct. I would say I know what drifts and, and what shortens just, just by the information I know. So for me personally, yeah, I use both and, and I've seen the fruits of that. But for a recreational guy, without having someone telling him, just betting into the tote blindly, you've just got no hope. So you've got a four-year non-compete in place. You're looking at what your next step's going to be. Did you look at the Australian wagering horse racing marketplace and think, gee, this is barren and dry, or do you think this is a this is a wetland and I can't wait to, to get my feet stuck in? I'll tell you what it was, Jake. I was sat in a hotel room with the million bucks in my pocket in London, and I I left home when I was 16 um, to go to the UK and play football, and I just hadn't been back to Australia for any meaningful amount of time. And my parents were getting older, and you know my nieces and nephews were growing up, and and I wanted to be home, you know, and I wanted to spend time with them, and I'd, I'd kind of spent enough time away, so I booked my flight. 
and I haven't been back to the to the UK or, or Europe yet. Obviously, next year I'm going back, but um, it's it's one of them ones where I came back and I looked at it and I thought, okay, this is a skill set I've got. I've got this money. Um, do I want to just go back to playing poker, um, or do I want to try and build something and, and utilize the knowledge that I've gotten and, and and build something that can you know realize a value 10x what I've got um, here? So I looked at horse racing and I thought, look, it's always been probably my number one passion, horse racing, and um, I was never really beating it. Even when I was betting sports at a high level, I was never really beating horse racing to the point um, that I should have done. So I spent 12 months here before I did anything with with race power, building a model and understanding the markets. And I literally, I would I would pay anyone who spent more time on dynamic odds than me over that 12-month period. <laughs> you know, just just understanding, learning. Um, I, I don't tell Carl this from dynamic odds, but I harvested his entire fluctuations database and all of his data just to try and understand what the hell was happening when prices would go off at 11 o'clock and you know this the the impact of minimum bet laws in in various jurisdictions and and what impact that would have on the market and and how the market would overreact and where we could still pick up low-hanging fruit and obviously as a a market driven guy and and those signals understanding you know are are there any meaningful signals in the australian racing market that i can just chip away and pick up an edge and and go from there and obviously as you learn more and more about horse racing the more time you spend you kind of realize that you're, everyone always gets back to, all right, we need a statistical model because the market-driven stuff, as you see apps like The Plunge and I've got a little product that I, I send out via our uh, G1X website called The Early Money Report, the value's gone. And over a significant period of time, those hit, right, hit rates are high. Like I know what Dr. Nick's on every day, but he's backed at 12s. Now I'm taking sixes. You're just never going to win long term. You might win that day. But, but I trend that out over a 12-month period. It's never going to work. So my thoughts were, let me just understand, when, to get back to it, my thoughts were, let me just understand horse racing and understand this market. And I would offer to you that the horse racing market in Australia is far more nuanced than than the Asian shark market for sports. I mean, I find, maybe it's because I've got more experience in, well, I had more experience in the Asian shark markets. I found it very simple to understand. But with with Australian horse racing, you've got Betfair that has less liquidity than any sharp book, sorry, than any corporate book, you know, swaying the line. So all of a sudden you've now, and then you've obviously got the on-track stuff, you've got the minimum bet laws, you've got the corporates, you've got the the physical machines. So there's so many moving aspects to the Australian horse racing betting that take a long time to understand those nuances. It's it's a lot more fun and there's a lot more games that they played, you know, like people influencing Betfair, which will push the corporates out, which then allows them to get more money down on track to to manipulate the NOP and VOPs. And it's a really, really fun market, you know, to see the game theory behind it with guys like Dr. Nick and Jelko, Sean to a lesser extent. It's very fun to watch them, um, how they ply their craft and try and get, get the action down they want. Throughout that period when you were learning the markets and, and spending a lot of time on dynamic odds, did you – did anything strike you as to the size of the Australian racing market, let's call it, versus the global sports market? Were you thinking, you know, this is a this is a tiny chunk, but it's a big enough chunk for me, or is this bigger than you expected, or what was the the thought behind that? Yeah, it's look clearly it's it's big enough to make Jelko and and Dr. Nick billionaires almost, you know, like it's it is there is still enough low hanging fruit where you can earn a very nice living out of this market if you've got the correct tools. Um, but in terms of you know its liquidity in in 
in context to the Asian sharp betting markets, you know, for, for say, a, a, an average Premier League game, you know, it's nothing. But in terms of, of the ability to find edges in this space, I, I think you, you're you going to be able to find more edges in, in horse racing in Australia than you would in the Asian sharp markets right now. So in that sense, it, it is fertile ground um, and, and big edges do still exist, um, you know, because you've got the country racing provincials and the metros and, you know, I know guys who just you know play country maidens and and may do really well for themselves because they're, they're trial pervs and and things like that so look I, th- I think the opportunities that exist in this market because it is it is so inefficient really exist whereas the asian sharp markets they get more efficient every day for sports broken up some sports bettors over here in the u.s recently who say that things appear and then they can bet them and then once they feel confident about them they kind of go away and that can be nfl uh, that can last for half or even a full season, which is a pretty short period of time. If you find something, you'd hopefully be able to maximize it for longer than one NFL season. What about in the Australian racing marketplace? Do you find edges and angles that appear around for a while, or do you think that things are, they sharpen up pretty quickly and, and things that might exist uh, go away, and then you've got to hop to the next one and then continue that process? Only doing this really full time, uh, you know, for eighteen months, two years. I've I've seen a couple of things come and go um, as as trainers come and go, really. And and but the Darren Weir thing was was pretty interesting, wasn't it? You could literally back Darren Weir in the country when the plunge was on, like you know, you you create an assessed price, but the real assessed price was a dollar oh one. You know, barring the horse falling over, it was just the ultimate good thing. You know, it's, you know, so you see the ledges like that following the trainers. Um, and they're, they're always going to be short-lived. But I, I think edges such as, you know, for example, you know, I, I focus on 900-meter, 1,200-meter sprint races, and I would offer to anyone that I'm probably, um, you know, at least in, in the top 10% in Australia at that particular field, if, if not the top five. I think those edges having fundamentals and sound fundamentals in there, you are always going to be able to capitalize on the recreational money just, just due to the fact that you're, you're being disciplined in your race selection. And that's, that's also a huge factor is being very disciplined in what races you bet into. And the recreational money in those races will always trend towards the favorite. Um, and they'll always trend towards horses or put themselves on the speed. Um, and there's just so much, so much low hanging fruit in those, in those sprint races that I can't see the edge drying up in the next, you know, at least 12 to 24 months. And if it does, I'll be shocked. But yeah, I think, I think the edges I've seen dry up, the most notable one was, was the Darren Weir one. It was just the best edge of all time. You know, like you could literally back a Darren Weir horse at, you know, $1.70 and it'd get into $1.45 and you could fucking have another go on it, (laughs) you know, because, (laughs) because it was, you know, it was just the ultimate good thing, you know, they were just, and especially when you'd have more than one Darren Weir horse in a race, you know, and if that Darren Weir horse, you know, if the plunge horse was off pace, and and the other Darren Weir horse was setting the pace where you could bet your bottom dollar that that horse that was on pace or leading was going to be going like the clappers and, and we were just going to run over the top of them late on the plunge horse you know like it was just it was just the ultimate good thing but from there like I, I probably wouldn't want to give away too many other ones but that's certainly one that springs to mind have you thought about post-race when you're analyzing what happened in a race let's say it's a 1100 meter race up in Sydney or in Melbourne or whatever and Looking back, and you say, "Well, this thing on Betfair went from six fifty to seven to seven fifty to to thirteen, and then the last two minutes it went from you know twelve into seven fifty on course." Can you sort of identify what's happened post race in some of those manipulation scenarios? 
Yeah, you know, I, I, would, I would offer anyone that I could probably understand in real time and I could even tell you who it is. Um, you know, it's it's so it, – the nuances of it, you know, a lot of the big syndicates will have guys on track and they want to manipulate the NOPs and the VOPs to smash the on-track bookies because they can get on to win 5000 per bookie. So what they want to do is, you know – like, for example, Dr. Nick, a guy like him, he'll make his move on, you know, normal race days, you know, so your Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday. He'll make his moves at 11 a.m. because he's got a whole team of guys that hit up the physical TAB stores. Now, 11 a.m., you need to factor the time difference in with Queensland. So that's that's when he's making his moves. So if you see big plonks around 11 a.m., what, what he, how he coordinates it is he gets all of these guys to hit the physical terminals, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria. Um, and then directly after that, he hits the corporates online. So before those prices, before the TAB machines have time to factor that price in and disturb the market, he then hits the corporates as well. You know, so that's a really fun way of doing it. And then guys like Jelko just play the best games ever with the Betfair tote. You know, if, if they want, if he wants his on-track guys to get on for a better price, well, he can just, you know, smash lays in and, and ghost the market and throw in spoof trades and then, you know, the market kind of um, freaks out a bit and, and prices start getting wound out and then all of a sudden they're backed on track and, and you just know he's, he's a wily old fox and he's just pulled their pants down again, you know, and got the price, an inflated price just by manipulating, you know, <laughs> a Betfair market that's got less liquidity than, than any corporate book. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I, I wonder how long those types of things will exist with technology the way it's headed and, you know, computing power generally, hopefully for the TAB's sake and for everyone's sake, potentially that uh, those machines will figure out a way to realize that, you know, 67 machines across 12 suburbs have just been, you know, hit for this much money. And then, you know, it, instead of taking three minutes, it might take three seconds one day. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're, you're spot on. Then that edge disappears. And then, you know, so it's it's almost like even if you, like a lot of the pros, like even like Sean and things like that, they've got execution layers. So obviously they've got pretty strong analysis, guys like Sean. But their execution layers, they're, they're real key, you know, because they're getting value across, you know, the maximum. You know, so if say they've got, like they know if they hit Unibet first, then then that'll spook lab broke. So I'm just this is arbitrary right now. This isn't true. Um, then then Betty's will go off. Then Sportsbet goes off. Then all of a sudden, everyone just every trader just switches his price off and just waits for the dust to settle. So the execution layer and 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 getting on for the right amount of money with the bookmakers in the right order is is an art to itself. So let's say a 19 year old, 20 year old, 21 year old kid comes up to you and says. I've just finished my uni degree in stats or accounting or business or or whatever it is, computer science, and I want to go work at, at an operator. I'm desperate to work at an operator and get experience. Do you know much about that space, if it's a worthwhile pathway for those looking to get experience? And, and you know, similar to your time where you spend hours and hours and hours, 16 hours a day, um, smashing out trades, smashing out a lot of the work, do you think that's a a place they should be looking? Or do you think even that age, uh, for those types of people, there are other avenues that don't, necessarily sit on the operator side yeah i just i think it comes down to what kind of person you are you know i think if you are if you are independent and probably don't like authority or probably a little bit like myself as a kid you know you you gravitate more towards going oh i can do this for myself i'll be a, a rogue renegade i'll i'll just play poker for a living and make money and you understand long term that you need to play nice with others and you need to be very fair and i think it depends what kind of person you are if you're willing to 
sit there and learn theory and 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 chip away at it then absolutely going to working for an operator would be fine but i've met a lot of traders who who wouldn't you know they couldn't make a living as a professional punter to save their life you know because i, I just don't think they understand it or they haven't had the necessity to understand it i think if you want to be great at anything you've got to really it's a baptism of fire and you, it's a sink or swim you know you learn by doing you learn by making mistakes you learn by losing your shirt having to grind back make the money again you know every time you go broke you you never want it to happen again you know and and in, in your early 20s you it's far easier to go broke. You know, if I went broke now at 31, it'd, it'd be devastating. But, you know, you go broke at 22, who gives a shit? You borrow $1,000 and you grind, grind it back up again. You know, and I think it really depends on, on the individual. And I think if, they, if they're that way inclined of understanding how to manage risk and, and have an appetite to manage risk and, and understand and learn the game, I'd, I'd say do both. You know, just Try, try and try and be a punter and try and learn and, and try and find an edge somewhere and hammer away at it. But but Jake, it's funny, isn't it? Because you, you you know you're you're involved in the industry. As you look back on it, as you probably look back on a 22 year old Jake and go, Jesus Christ, I knew nothing, you know. And and I know it at 40, I'm going to look back at Reese Crowth at 31 and go, Jesus Christ, mate, you knew nothing, you know. So it's like I think you evolve as time goes on, don't you? Absolutely true. I and I talk to other people about it, even when I go back to Australia now and then talk to my mates when we were talking about, you know, we used to go to Mooney Valley Thursday nights back in, geez, it must have been the early 2000s maybe, anyway, whatever it was, or going to Flemington and Caulfield back in the day and betting and thinking we were probably going to win that day, which absolutely was not true. And this idea of being at the tip of the sword, you always think you're at the tip of the sword because that's all you really know. And then when you do look back in the self-evaluation, that's why it's so critical as a a betting person you need to look at your uh, your results, your bets. You got to analyze it critically and make better decisions moving forward. And I think that's absolutely the the case here, and I think it's it's certainly an interesting one because there is a an element where getting three, four, five, seven years of experience in whatever field it is, day to day, just grinding it out, crunching in the big hours, whether it's being a lawyer, whether it's being a professional punter, or or working in business, is clearly helpful. But I think. Certainly the audience for this show, there's probably a lot that it resonates with who are you know, interested in betting, maybe working as a plumber or a tradie or a, wearing a suit every day and they often think, geez, I wonder how I could get to that world and how I could do what Reese does or how I could do what a lot of the other gamblers and professional bettors who I talk to do and that's why I was like asking it because it's a, it's a relevant question for many and many people who do it like yourself might take it for granted that it's like wow you just you wake up and you do it and you play poker and you move to london and then you find some swedish friends and then you start as you know a betting fund and then you tap into the asian betting markets and then you move back to australia and it's your 30th birthday like that's it, it kind of sounds like that sometimes and it's uh it's i guess it must be comforting that it can be explained that way but i'm sure for others are thinking yeah that's not necessarily how i'm going to roll here yeah, mate. It's. I'll tell you something. It's. It's a great way to put it. But it's the heartache along the way, mate. You know, the sleepless nights, the stress. Um, you know, the lost relationships. You know, I've lost girlfriends over this game because it's all encompassing, and and my appetite to to be great at this game and and win and and do something significant in this space. It comes at a cost, mate. You know, and and a lot of. I always think everything happens for a reason, though. So it's it's no problem. But it's mate. There's. There's a lot of ups and downs in this game, and I think if you are going to be a hardened gambler and get to the point where I've got now where I'd, I'd say, you know, there's still a lot to learn, and you, you learn it every day. You can never rest on your laurels, but I'd say that I'm, you know, a very, very proficient in this space. Mate, it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of heartache along the way 
as as I think getting good at anything does. You know, you just you've just got to put in the hours. You've got to swallow it. And all it teaches you is make bloody good decisions as often as you can with the data you've got. That's it. <laughs> you know. So I got to ask you before I let you go, and uh, it's it's certainly an interesting area, the, the Australian horse racing wagering space for me anyway, living living abroad now and looking at it from afar. But tell me what space or area or what gap you saw, uh, which was the impetus for starting RacePal. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was more to prove to myself that the model that I'd built works and to prove to everyone. So last spring, I gave it away for free and we built almost a cult following over the spring because we were just tipping winners for fun. And then at that point when we had a community behind it, people just understood, you know, they probably got a feeling for me and, and what I was about and that I was, you know, a pretty straight shooter and, um, you know, some amount of talent in this space. We built up a little following and I thought, well, you know what, you know, if these guys want me to keep doing this every day, let's just stick a $20 a week fee on it and let's just build a little community. So we've got a Slack community of guys and and we literally i just feed in our analysis every day into those guys and mate the churn is minimal like we've had a lot of guys that have been with us for 12 months who just love it and and i think i think there's one of four guys in in our in in our race power community and i think some of them are just recreational guys who are going to be on track who want to enhance their race day experience by having a few winners I think there's probably a portion of about 10 to 15% who are professional gamblers themselves and, and they plug in our assessed prices and maybe there's a quality control filter to their own stuff and and whatever. And then I think there's there's those who are what you said, plumbers, uh, bricklayers, carpenters, tradies, guys who work in the office who have never been able to win at punting, who just use race power as an investment strategy. They follow our staking strategies down to the T um, and they just stick with us through thick and thin. And then I think... The the ones that I, I really, you know, I love all of them, but the, the ones I really like are, are the ones who are there for the education. They're happy to pay the 100 bucks a month or whatever it is, and they literally, you know, with the Race Power Club, they've got direct access to me and a few other guys that you know who are in that community as well that that just answer any questions about assessed prices, getting the value, and, and you see them improve as punters. You know, like 12 months ago, if we had a bad day, it was, Reese, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing, to, to now, yeah, that's par for the course, we'll get them tomorrow, no problem at all, and we chip away at it. You know, and you, you see that, like you were saying about the 19-year-old and seeing him evolve. I've seen our community evolve into guys who just understand the ups and downs. Like this weekend was our best weekend ever. Literally, I think it was – we made forty percent bankroll growth in a in a week in two days, Jay. It was just insanity. Like everything just fell our way. And obviously they know not to get too excited or 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 too elated with it, nor to get too sad when it goes really bad. It's just those days are gonna happen, the really good ones and the really bad ones are gonna happen too. And we just keep chipping away at our edge and after twelve months, well, we'll look we'll look back and we'll all go, Well, we all made a bit of money and had a bit of fun. So is this gonna I guess uh, suppress your appetite to jump back in sports at the I guess day one after the non-compete or do you think there's a, a long-term viable future here? Well I just acquired G1X which is a media site over here um, I just made probably my biggest investment since um, since the fund in G1X so we've acquired that so the goal really for me I mean you know you and I spoke off air about the US stuff and, and all the rest of it I don't think the USA is, is out of my future I think the USA plays a big part in Reese Crowther especially in the next five years horse racing will always be probably my number one love but with the with the US opening up and my ability to to win at sports and my ability to to add some expertise to sports trading 
then USA certainly fits into that. And also US horse racing as well. So if you look at, if you trend it out, obviously I've, I've signed a big joint venture with one of the biggest betting syndicates in the world with some fantastic people involved. Obviously people you know that we can't really say at the minute. But, you know, moving forward into 2020, it's it's going to be so exciting because all I can say is, is that race power is going global um, and we've got significant resource behind it and um, there'll be a number of, of verticals and, and businesses we provide and largely it will be based around providing the community and the horse racing community and the sports community with, with intelligence and allowing them to, to make good decisions with the intelligence that, that our back end provides. Yeah, and I think that's something I'm certainly big on and part of the reason why I do this and why it's lasted 110 episodes or whatever it is because of that, you know, long-term sustainability, the letting the uh letting the listener or the audience or the whoever it is engage in the in the right way for them and making it a not a short-term clickbait solution and making it something better and something that you can continue to build on. It's not about this week or this month even, it's about overall and and the 19-year-old can look back when they're 31 and say, yeah, that was worth my time and worth my, you know, general investment money or time or whatever ultimately it becomes. So certainly aligned on that one. Before I let you go, I want to ask, where can people find you on the World Wide Web or is Twitter the best place? Is it an open Slack channel? Tell us a little bit about that. It's, it's not an open Slack channel. It's uh, it's a private Slack channel, but it's $100 a month if, if you want to get good analysis and come in there and um, you've got access to a bunch of pros who, who will help you and are very open about helping you. That's what I will say. You know, being a professional punter can sometimes be a very lonely place. So we do have pros in that Slack channel who sometimes just want to talk about a horse, a bad beat as well, and how sick it was as well as a recreational punter does. So uh, the Race Power Club exists, um, and we've got the various services. Obviously, the joint venture we've got is Race Power Global, which is an SMS service, which is covering global racing, which is, you know, it's starting to really uh, hit its stride now. But if you want to get in contact with me, uh, I just opened up a, a Twitter account. I tried to stay away from Twitter for a long time because I felt like it was a bit of a cesspool and everyone wants to chuck in their two cents on things. It's, I think I, I can it to, you know, having, having, you know, the best performance ever when you never play the minute type thing in sports. Um, so I think I'm on Twitter, I'm not super active. But, yeah, if you just find me an email, reese at racepower.com.au, I'm very open. I'm often happy to assess races. If, if you've got a, a horse as an owner, I'm often happy to uh, to assess races and give you some speed maps and show you how your horse may do. You know, more than anything, I think what people will say about me is that, you know, my open communication, I mean, most of our customers have got my number directly and they just give me a call, you know, and, and I'm always more than open to chat and um, and chat about this game and, and, and anything. Not that I'm going to give out my number here, um, but, <laughs> but, but Twitter, Twitter, mate, is, uh, is fine. Or my email, reese at racepal.com.au. Awesome, Reese. Very much appreciate your time and all your insights. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Jake, my pleasure. Thanks, mate. 